As your pastor, I'm aware that Mother's Day brings a complexity of emotions um, across the room. Um, And so while I know it's not a simple cut and dry day of joy, uh, it is worth celebrating. It's worth honoring. It's worth taking a moment to um, say thank you uh, to the mothers. And so happy Mother's Day. Um, We really do appreciate you and we are with you uh, in the midst of whatever that stirs up for you um, in this season. So uh, as a gift, Mother's Day this year, we're actually going to talk about womanhood. We don't normally um, alter our, our sermon series schedule for um, holidays other than like Easter and Christmas and things like that. Uh, but this year, we have to be in a gender series. We're in the middle of that. I'll talk more about that in a minute. And as I originally laid this series out, uh, I had us doing kind of, we, we were going to do an intro and then do biblical manhood and what that looks like, and then do another week on what uh, biblical manhood, the brokenness and, and redemption of that, and then go to womanhood and do brokenness and redemption, one on what it should be, and then one on uh, brokenness and redemption. And I sent that over to Alex so he could begin his worship planning, and he pretty quickly texted me back. He said, so you're going to talk about manhood on Mother's Day, huh? I was like... Uh, yeah, I didn't put that together. I won't. Do, let's, let's not. That's pretty bold. So let's, uh, let's switch some things around. So we did that. And uh, so what we did is, um, so if you're new with us, we are uh, in the middle of a series um, called Gender Revealed, where we're letting God's word really speak to and hopefully bring clarity into um, the confusion um, and distortion that our culture is kind of wrestling through around gender and sexuality. And so um, we have done kind of an intro about, you know, God's good design as, um, you know, making us male and female, that that is, that is good news, right? It's good for our flourishing. Um, and then we, we talked about biblical manhood last week, and today we'll talk about womanhood, and then we'll revisit each of those, kind of looking at how the manhood is broken and, and how Jesus redeems it, and then how womanhood is the same, and Jesus redeems that over the next couple of weeks. So that schedule is on your app if you want to kind of know what, what sermons are coming when. But um, the big idea is that, man, the, the, we were talking about you know, biblical manhood and womanhood. We used to just be able to kind of talk about what that looked like and what made, you know, kind of what God had called us to uh, as men and women that really sets us apart uh, from you know, boys and girls, right? So like we have a whole wing full of kiddos back there that biologically are, are males and females, but none of us would pretend that those are men and women back there, right? Like there's something that distinguishes, um, a, you know, somebody that just has the biology of a man or just has the biology of a woman, uh, or male and female, that there's something that's different between, you know, that, which we would say is true of those kiddos back there, but that Men and women, there's something that God has called us to beyond our, bi- our biology, and that our biology, our physicality, is not to be tossed aside. It's not fluid, as our culture would like to tell us today. It's not uh, non-binary and, you know, kind of this fluid idea that, so- that society has placed on us, that we can move in and out of uh, as we identify. That, that, that is not how God has designed us, and rather, there are differences to our biology, and they're not to bring oppression or... Um, you know, stifle human flourishing. In fact, quite the opposite, that God has designed us male and female for our good and for our flourishing, and that that's actually what's best for us. And it's not just some rule to follow because God says so, but it's actually what's good for mankind and what brings joy and flourishing into the world. Now, I know that our society today would tell us that that is an oppressive religious idea that is out of date and, and whatever. They would have a lot of opinions on it, but that's why like, we kind of started the series with a reminder that um, we as Christians have um, a particular empathy toward those that are experiencing confusion around gender. Because we know that God has designed things for our good, male and female, but that 
things are not the way that God designed them, right? That sin has entered the world and brought corruption and um, you know, distortion to God's good creation. And so that's what causes a, a disconnect between what we feel we should be and oftentimes what we are. And we all have experienced that in one way or another. And, you know, even the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 7 how he has this struggle with sin that, that, he, that what, he, what he knows he should do, what he knows is right before God in the way that he was created, his body wars against that and he, he, he longs, his flesh longs to do what is, what is wrong and what God is, is Condemned, And he said, there's this war within me. And so we can identify with this tension of, of people feeling like they're not at home in their bodies. And the reason is not that something has gone wrong and they were created to be, you know, that they're really a, ma- a male, but they're in a female body or vice versa. The, the reason that they're feeling that and the reason that we feel that, even as we, you know, deal with, with tumors and cancer and uh, disease and uh, addiction and things like that, where we struggle against our, our flesh and our physicality. Like, we know that the answer is not within us. The answer is not, you know, becoming more of what we feel like we are. The answer is in Jesus Christ, right? That we have a unique empathy. We can understand why people could be confused in their own bodies, but we have a unique solution as well. So that doesn't mean we just say, oh, yeah, whatever, you know, all is good. And we, no, we, we stand up and we, we speak truth and say, no, no, God did design us male and female and it's for our good. And the answer to our struggle and to our wrestle is not within ourselves, it's not experiencing some, you know, better version of ourselves. This is not the first sexual revolution our culture's been through, amen? Like, there, there's been lots throughout history, and they always promise really big, and they always let down really hard, right? Like, there's been lots of these things where we, where we believe that if we, you know, engage in this way and come to this realization that, you know, we'll, we'll experience life. But no, the, the ancient truth is still the truth, that this is how God has made us, male and female. So, uh, but Jesus is the answer, right? That Jesus experienced the ultimate body dysphoria when he became sin. He knew no sin. He was perfect and righteous and holy, and he took on our sin, all that did not belong to him, all that was foreign to his body. He took it on and, and endured the, the fullness of that on the cross. He took our filth and our shame and our struggle And in return, he gives us his righteousness so that we could begin to be healed and one day we'll fully be healed in his presence. Amen? That's the gospel hope, and that applies to all issues, and particularly ones of gender. And so, um, while we can no longer just say, hey, this is biblical manhood and womanhood because there's so much complexities around the nuances of gender discussion and whatnot, we can't address all of those nuances and all of those different things. So what we're going to do is instead just look at the goodness of what God did design it, what it should be like, and let that inform us of, hey, why we do care about gender and sexuality and what God has in place for us and why God's um, law, why his word is not just this law to be followed and to, uh, you know, to hold up signs and make everybody conform to, that it's a message of hope and reconciliation that we speak to the world because it is for our good that God has made us this way, and it is through Jesus that we experience redemption. Amen? So that's the, the heart behind this. So we're going to look at womanhood today. And so if you would, keep your Bibles open or turn them back or fire up an app, however you want to do it. Turn to Genesis 2. I want us to look at this together, uh, especially as we talk about womanhood. I, I don't, like, I'm certainly not qualified to speak on the subject, right? Um, but my job is to unpack God's word for us and, and really let that bear weight on us. And so uh, if you would, turn to Genesis 2 with me. We'll walk through this passage together. Um, and here's, here's, here's where we are in Genesis 2. If you, if you know how the kind of the Bible is laid out, Genesis 1 runs through the creation story, and it says, in the beginning there was nothing, right? And then God was you know, there in the midst of the nothingness, and he begins to speak and bring uh, light and darkness and form and 
shape to the void, and he speaks all these things into existence. And as he does so, he says, ah, oh, man, you know, first day, there was evening, there was morning, it was light and dark. And he says, man, it's good, right? And he goes on, he makes, uh, makes the plants, and he, this is good. And as he progresses through the days, um, he, he gives them a grade, whether they're, you know, good or not. And all the first five days, he says, man, it's really good. And then on the sixth day, he makes man in his image. And in Genesis one twenty six, it says he made them in his image, male and female, he created them, right? So right there we have this framework of, yes, male and female was a part of the beginning, part of God's design. It wasn't accidental. It's not uh, something we evolved into. This is how God has made us, male and female, he made us. So, uh, and so it says, man, it's very good. And God commissions the people and gives them, like, go be fruitful, multiply, rule on the earth. You're going to be, God says, you go be my image bearers and my rulers on the earth. You go and and Take the earth, it's wild, it's grown up, there's creatures everywhere. You go make it livable. You go uh, subdue it and bring life to it. Um, and then chapter 2 kind of shifts in and it's going to zoom in. So it's not different. Some people are like, well, that's contradictory, it's talked about this. No, no, it, chapter 2 is going to zoom in a little bit closer to the creation of man specifically. So one gives us this big overview of all that he made and you know, tells us on the sixth day he made male and female, it was really good. But in chapter 2 is going to zoom in to how he made his, the crown of his creation male and female humanity. And so that's where we're at in chapter 2. And if you notice, the, verse that, the first verse that Tara read there in, in 18 says, then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. So there's something that's already happened before this, right? Like if it says then, right, there, there's obviously story that happened previous to that. And what has happened is that it's gone through how God has made, um, you know, everything in existence. And then uh, he speaks everything into existence, and then in uh, chapter 2, verse 7, he, it says that the Lord God shifts, and he starts making things a little bit different. And uh, in verse 7 of chapter 2, it says that, that God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So right there we see we are set apart as humans from the rest of creation. Like there's, there's something special in particular about the way that God created us in that moment. Uh, but he, he does that with man. He makes them out of dirt. He breathes life into them. And then he goes through and he, he says, hey, here's what you're going to do. You're going to, you know, in, in take care of this garden. And he talks about the goodness of that. And then he puts them in the garden to work it and keep it. Um, he gives them the instruction. Don't eat of, you know, you can eat of all of these trees and all of this fruit, but that one, stay away from that. That's going to bring you death. Then we get to verse 18 and it says, but then the Lord God said, it is not good that man shall be alone. This is the first time in his creative narrative, that God says something is not good. And it comes when he is particularly looking in on the man alone in this world. He's, he's made all the other creatures, the male and female, and the, to be fruitful and multiply. And yet he, he looks in and he says, okay, it's not good that man shall be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, there's so much beauty in this story, but I think it's so often missed because of a misunderstanding or a lack of fullness of understanding of what's going on here. When we, when we talk about the way that God made uh, the woman, oftentimes it can come across to be presented as though she's kind of a secondary uh, add-on, right? It's like, oh, yeah, you know, he made this whole world. He put Adam there to, to work it and keep it. And then he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, she, something's missing Eve. And, and she kind of, you know pauses, takes her out of her rib, and then, oh yeah, now things are good to go again. But really, I, what I want us to see as we kind of get started today uh, in the w- womanhood and what it is, I want us to see um, a couple things about the passage itself and the culture and the context in which it is written. And first of all, if you, you notice the progressive nature of the creation story, right, that it starts with nothingness, and then God brings form into the void, light and day, and, and it progresses, right? And it culminates with what? The creation of 
man and woman, right? Like that's the pinnacle of his creation. Um, but what we see here, is, and if you, if you keep that in mind and you realize, okay, he made all of these things and then the, the, the final thing was very good was, was, was humanity, right? But then as he zooms in and we realize, okay, so if that's kind of the order of things, it progressive and then the crown, the climax is, is him making man, now he's going to zoom in and show us something even more particular. And I believe something that would, would turn that narrative of the woman kind of be secondary and add on, turn that upside down because what we actually see is he makes man, Right, gives him a purpose, gives him a task to do, and then he says, hey, hey, it's not good, and actually, I'm not quite done, and I've saved the best for last. Right, And so what he does is he, he, um, he, lay, he puts the man to sleep. I'm skipping down. We'll come back to some of those other verses. Um, 21, so, God, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he, was, while he slept, he took one of his ribs, and he closed it up in the place of fish, and, and that rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into woman and brought her to the man. So listen, there's something particular and special about the creation of Eve here that stands against the creation of everything else. Not only did, did God speak everything else, all of the creatures of the world, like the blue whale, that, like we can't even comprehend how magnificent it is, and the eagle that soars in the sky, like all of those things, God just speaks that into existence, right? Then when he makes man, he bends down and he gets his hands dirty and he makes him out of dust and he breathes life into him and that's the pinnacle of creation. It's really good. But then he says, no, no, okay, something, something better is coming. And he, he puts Adam to sleep. And instead of starting with dirt again, he actually takes something out of Adam, takes a rib out. And out of that, he makes what is known as the crown of creation, right? So she's not secondary. She's actually the, the, the culmination of all that is good. Like there's something beautiful about the way that Adam is made. Adam is kind of dust refined and Eve is kind of like twice removed from that, right? Like she's not dust refined. She's dust refined and then refined again. And so there's something beautiful about the way that even the story is set up that says, no, no, something is, is special about Eve here. The progressive climax points to that. And, and then... Um, you know, the way she's made, not out of that, not out of dust. And so what all this is pointing to is um, that she, Eve is brought forth as the beautiful crown of God's creation. Proverbs 12.4 says that a noble wife is the crown of her husband. Proverbs 31 says that she is far more precious than jewels. 1 Corinthians 11 says, and says, 7 that says that a wife is the glory of man. And so actually the Bible begins to flip that script and say, no, no, she's, she's not to be secondary and kind of, an add-on. In fact, she is the culmination of. And this, again, stands over and against, if you even think about the, the reality that how many Eves did God make for Adam? One, right? Now, that doesn't sound that all, that, all that shocking to us, but in this Eastern culture of this day, we know as we read on in the story, when God gives this word to Moses and he speaks this into uh, the, the time in which they're born, like, women are treated really like property, right? And, and really like cattle. The more you have, the better. And that's kind of the posture of much of the, the culture in this day. And so for, for God to say, no, no, this is the original design. There is, there's one woman and she is not to be treated as property. She's not to be used and abused and ran over and whatever, objectified. She's actually the crown of creation. We should hold her in high honor and esteem as a co-image bearer of God himself. Really, the misunderstanding that happens there comes from wrongly understanding God's word. And, and much of God's word is a narrative. And opponents of 
Christianity will, will take out portions of it and say, see, God, you know, this happened in the Bible. And there's some really horrific stories about ways that women were objectified and used as property and really abused in the Bible. And they'll pull those out and say, see, this is what your Bible says. You know, th- this, is, this is outdated. This is uh, um, chauvinistic. This is sexist and all of those things. But yet that's a failure to understand what's actually going on in the Scripture. The, the Bible is telling those stories and talking about the way things are in those moments, not the way that they should be. This is the way they should be. Genesis 1 and 2, that's how God made them to be. She's the crown of creation. Something happens in the next chapter that breaks and fractures all of it. And one of the effects is women being devalued, used, abused, treated as property, and all of those things, and, and it's culminated into, you know, much of the mess that we see today. But, so you have to know the difference between what's being, you know, describing what's happening in the Bible versus prescribing what we should be doing, and there's, there's different ways to do that. I don't have time to unpack all that, but that's really rooted in a misunderstanding of, of God's Word itself. But really, when you see the, the story for what God has uh, actually meaning here, you actually see that the script is, is actually headed toward a, a valuing of women that is really countercultural and really stands over and against any other world religion in a way that gives light to the particular creation of the woman. And, and really, Jesus, and there's a, there's a theme of that being uh, redeemed throughout Scripture as we see women like Ruth and Naomi and Esther and all these women throughout the Old Testament that uh, and in Jesus' day in the Gospels, and there's this theme of women being redeemed. And Jesus himself stands countercultural to his day and the way that he treats women. And so I, I just want to kind of flip that on its head and say, no, no, she's not an add-on. She's not an afterthought to creation. In fact, I would say she is the crown jewel of creation. She's the, the ultimate pinnacle as the progressive nature of it would, would lay out. And then as the scriptures would say, man, she's the crown of creation and of her man. So... That leads us to kind of our first point of how women image God in ways that are particular to them. So we're all image bearers, and there's certainly a lot that we have in common as men and women, right? As humanity, like there's a whole lot about us that images God that we share. But then there's some particulars that, and we're equal, right? It's kind of the title of the first sermon of the series, equal but different, right? So there's some distinctions about who we are as men and women, but that doesn't mean one is better than the other. Uh, It simply means there's some complementary distinctions about that. And so that brings us to kind of our first point that we want to look at, and is that women image God as helper. Now, um, um, the word for helper there in verse um, 18, or make a helper fit for him, um, is, is, is a tough word to translate because it's not used a whole lot else in Scripture. Um, and it has been, you know, kind of, even that is like, uh, that's not a super dignifying word. It's like, oh, she's a helper. But when you, when you look a little bit deeper and you realize the, the context here, that that word, Ezra Konegda, like, it is only used elsewhere in Scripture to refer to God himself. Right? That throughout Scripture you see uh, passages like this that I believe is from, I don't know, Deuteronomy. If you click that again, that, that reference will come up. But there is, no, there is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to help to your help through the skies in his majesty. And then on it goes to the, to the next one where it just talks about God being our help, I believe, in Psalm 75. And it says that, um, But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. That is what is being portrayed there whenever he says, I'm going to make a, a helper. It's more about someone like God and imaging God as the helper, as the life giver and the sustainer of this relationship. Like there, there's so much more than just, oh, she's a helper. She's an add-on like she gets to do. No, no, no. She is a pivotal part of, of what is needed here. And then if you even think about the nature of needing help, 
right? You think about the fact that God looks upon man and says, it's not good that he should be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. We'll get to that in just a minute. But the nature of needing help in and of itself does not demean the one who is being approached to be the helper, right? In fact, quite the opposite. If I'm coming to you and saying, hey, I have this task that I've been given and I'm not competent to do it on my own. I need your help. That's actually elevating the one I've asked for help, right? And it's saying that I'm not competent. I I have a need to be filled and I need you to help me with that. Does that make sense? And so it actually should be dignifying in the sense that that it's saying man, man alone couldn't do what God had put him on the earth to do. He needed a helper suitable for him. And that word suitable for him or fit for him is actually you know, kind of better translated corresponding to him. Meaning that what has been said about man in Genesis 2-7 and really throughout the rest of it applies to her as well. Like there's not this distinction that gets put on like, oh, well, you know, the man's the real image bearer. And the woman's just there to, you know, kind of look pretty. And this gets played out in different cultural norms throughout different, you know, societies and times. But it, the, the posture of it, this getting distorted is the same where we want to treat women as this add-on and the secondary thing to what God has actually done. Whenever I would say quite the opposite, the idea of being the helpmeet is, is, is actually to be what God is to us. So the woman is not secondary. Rather, she is a crucial um, part of the image-bearing role of humanity. For the world to see God on display the way that he has uh, put in place, the way that he designed it, women are indispensable to the plan. Right? They're indispensable. They are not an add-on. They are not secondary. They are not less than. They are, in fact, the crown of and indispensable to the image-bearing purpose of humanity and God's glory. So the, the first way that women image God particularly is as a helper. Now, the second way, and I need you to stay with me on this one, okay? Before you check out and go, oh, I knew it, or what? Like, I need you to listen, okay? I need you to, I need you to stay with me. The second way in which God, or women image God as, in, in their feminine nature, is as a submitter. Now, listen, again, two things. Before you kind of check out on me, first, uh, we won't unpack this at length today, but you should know that that doesn't mean that you're in submission to every man uh, that you see, right? It, it doesn't mean... Um, that, that every man that you see can tell you what to do and you have to submit. That is not the context. That is not what's being um, put in place here as a, a woman. It simply means that um, it is to man that God has given the primary weight and responsibility of headship, both in the home and in the church. So in the home, if you're married, there is a call to be in submission to your husband. And in the church, there is a call for all people to be in submission to the elders and that that role of elder, that role of overseer is, is reserved for men. And, and listen, I realize that, that stirs up tension for many of us, but um, you, you can't just hear that and write it off without hearing how God has called men to lead in both of those contexts. Right? And if you weren't here last week, you, you missed Micah's sermon where he did a great job laying out the task that is before us as men. That when we live as God has called us to be as men, right, there will be no beef with submission uh, because we will be loving, selfless, humble, self-sacrificing leaders that really make all of those around us flourish. That's the call of, 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 of men, to be the ones that give first, that, that cultivate, that take responsibility. 
And, and Titus 2, which we'll look at later in the series, really says that if we get this right, if men are being men and women are being women and, and both are investing down line in the culture and the society, there, nobody will be able to say a word. It really says it'll shut the mouths of opponents. What he's saying here, in other words, is, is if we actually live out God's design and men live as God designed and called and commanded us to live in our home and in our church and in the workplace and in society, we fulfill our role. Um, women will, will gladly come alongside and, and flourish that and it will be this beautiful thing that nobody will be able to speak against because you'll be like, man, yeah, that's it. That's what's supposed to work. That's how things are supposed to be. Does that make sense? In other words, men, if, a, if an ultra, hyper, modern feminist, and listen, I don't, there's, there's, there's a lot of good things about the feminist movement, and I'm not going to get into all those nuances today, but, but if there's an ultra, ultra, hyper, modern feminist that comes into your home and starts to talk to your wife about how she should break free from your oppressive rule and submitting to you, and she can be anything that you are, and all this stuff, listen, think you should, like the climate and the culture of your home, your, li- your wife should laugh at that. She should laugh at that because she should go, no. There's freedom right here. There's freedom in how my husband lays down himself for me. And yes, he's the head, and I have to submit to that. But man, we do this thing together, and I am a partner with him. There's, there's, even, there's beauty in even how, this is, how, um, how Eve is made from Adam's rib. Um, I didn't say this earlier, but Matthew Henry has this quote talking about the way that, that Eve is made um, is, is literally... Um, telling us something about how she is to be treated. He says, the woman was made out of a rib, out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. Is there beauty in that? The way that God has so intentionally designed the, the creative order So yes, there's passages throughout the Bible that, that say, you know, wives, you should submit to your husbands, right? Yes, but, but you need to focus more on what that means for the men than it does for the women. Because I'm telling you, if you have a godly man that is living up to what God has called us to, to love our, our wives, to love people around us the way that Christ loved the church, to gave ourselves, give ourselves up for her, to, to really serve her, to be the first one to sacrifice, like all those things, when we do that, there'll be like no question, no problem with submitting to that and loving, living in that world. And so you need to look more at what God's called us men to do before you kind of, uh, you know, raise up against the idea of submission. And here, secondly, the, the, the other thing that, that should really uh, change that narrative about submission is you actually are imaging God in that moment when you serve and act as a submitter. Here, here's the deal. We talk about Jesus all the time as being God, right? That he is God, fully, not partly, not just the, like, no, he was God. He was there in the beginning. He's fully God, and he comes and takes on fully man. But, and so when, when Jesus comes to earth and he's, you know, doing his ministry, he's fully God. He's equal with God the Father, and yet, how does he live? In submission to God the Father, right? He's equal, but in submission to, right? He says it in John six thirty eight. he says, I've come not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Jesus says, I've come not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And and listen, you'll see this played out time and time again with Jesus, and particularly in Matthew 26, wherever Jesus is, or Matthew, yeah, uh, when Jesus is facing the cross, he he is praying and pleading. He says, God, if there's any other way, I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, but not what? Not my will, but your will be done. There's submission there. 
He's co-equal with God. He, he, there's no diminishment of who he is, and yet there's submission there. There's so much beauty, and really, um, Philippians exalts this in Philippians 2 whenever it says that Jesus, who was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather decided to give of his life and to submit to the Father's will. And that's what brings us the gospel. That's, how, that's what leads to Jesus' redemption. And so when, ladies, when you submit to a godly husband and when you serve in a godly church led by godly men, you are imaging God. You're imaging Jesus himself who submitted to God the Father. So there shouldn't be any diminishment in this. There's a responsibility and a headship given, but that responsibility is a heavy one and a weighty one that should not lead to boasting, should not lead to chauvinism, and should not lead to abuse. And if it does, that man, that group of people, that church should repent. The biblical call of men to be heads over their household and over the church should lead them to be the ones on their knees, washing feet, serving, and making sure that everybody else is flourishing. That's the biblical call of manhood. And that sets the stage for the biblical call of women as submitting and following that image of Christ. Next, women image God as life giver. Listen, uh, it's interesting part of the story. Man is created in Genesis, and God speaks over them to be fruitful and multiply, but there's some obvious biological implications here in which God has designed women to bring forth life. It's incredible to think about our physical design. It's incredible to think about the miracle of birth. So there's practical function that, that God designed the woman in the procreation of his image bearers. Like God is a creator. God is a life giver. Right? And God wants that image to continue to fill the earth. Well, how is he going to do that? Well, through, through women. Right? He takes the seed of man and somehow miraculously causes that thing to, to come to life and to begin to grow. And it's, it's, it's incredible. The miracle is incredible. The way that God has designed women's bodies to work and to, and to bring forth life in that way. It's, it's really mind-blowing. And so... Genesis 3.20, Adam calls his wife Eve, which means the mother of all things. So we see the woman is imaging God as the life giver. Now listen, this is not just about giving birth. I know that for, for some of you, like, again, especially on Mother's Day, like, that stirs up some, some angst in you because of infertility or other struggles. And again, I, I want to say that it's not just about giving birth. There's almost more parable-like implications here of how the body works, and it's almost secondary to the way that God has designed women to bring life into the world. It's, it's about bringing life. It's not just about having kids. It's about bringing life where there isn't sufficient life yet, right? Like, so you may be single. You may be infertile. You may be uh, unable to have kids for a number of reasons, and this is tough to you because you, maybe you have a longing to, to be a mother, or maybe you don't. Maybe you are, are married and you just simply don't have the desire to uh, have children of your own. And, and I would say that doesn't uh, you know, make you less of a woman. Like the, the idea of bringing forth life is engaging in this world and cultivating and nourishing things to life that are currently not there. And so... Um, I would say that, you know, in the Old Testament, the blessing was children, right? You see so much tension and angst about people who are unable to have children, and they're longing for, why can't I do this? Why can't I do this? Because the blessing of that day was children. In today's blessing, the New Testament blessing is disciples, 
right? So even if you're unable to bear children of your own, you need to know that, that God has called you to be a life giver, woman. God has called you to engage in the, in the process of bringing life where there is not none. The whole story of the gospel is for, what, to bring new life, to be born again. And so the, 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 the blessing, the fruit that's celebrated in the New Testament is disciples. And listen, there's a whole wing full of kiddos back there that need to be invested in. There's a whole community of children that need mentors. There's a whole bunch of orphans that need homes. There's a whole bunch of teenagers that meet on Sunday nights over here that need someone to walk with them and to navigate life with them. Like you can get in the game of bringing life without actually getting pregnant. Does that make sense? God has called and made women to be life givers. God has also called women in the way that he, women image God is by being nurturers. Deuteronomy 32, 11 and 12 describes God in this way. He says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and flutters over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them and bearing them on its pinions. You think of the, the way that birds care for their young. And it says the Lord God does that for his people. The way that Lord, the Lord nurtures and cultivates life and brings them. And, and he doesn't get mad that they're not able to fly. He doesn't get mad that they're not. He just keeps nurturing them. And, and listen, it's undeniable that God has made women to be nurturing in a way that most, listen, there's, there's overlapping things. I'm not saying that men are not nurturers, right? I'm not saying that women aren't protectors, providers. There's overlapping parts of this, but I think it's undeniable that a woman has been given this gift of nurturing that most of us men just don't compute with, right? If you have kids, you probably know this. You're just like, I don't know what to do with this kid. And mama comes in and just, just diffuses the situation and speaks life in and nourishes. And there's just a patience and, a, and a, an ability to teach there. And so I, I would just say that like God has called the calling of Genesis 2 here. Listen, it, it, he says, go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Um, and it's interesting the way that he unpacks this. If you go back to verse 19 of Genesis 2 there, he says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man would call every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not a helper fit for him. So he made Eve. Listen, there were animals that could help Adam rule and subdue. To some degree, right? There were animals like the horse can help Adam get from one place to another. The oxen can help Adam till up a, a field. And, you know, and so on and so on. You could go for the way that animals do serve a purpose, but there was, there was, they're, they're not going to be the ones that rule over. They're not going to, you know, speak and the rest of creation obey and subdue. Like, it's not going to work that way. So he creates Eve with this particular heart of, of nurturing and bringing things to life. And I, I, I liken it, Proverbs 31 is such a beautiful passage, and we'll look at that more later in the series, but it's a beautiful passage of what a biblical woman is, and it talks about, man, she, she, takes, uh, you know, she takes chaos at home, and she brings order into it. She sees things that need to be done, and she does it, and, and on, so on and so on. And, and I kind of liken that to Genesis 1, when there's darkness and nothingness and chaos, God is there, and it begins to bring order, right? He begins to uh, bring order into things, and, and Proverbs 31 talks about the woman who, who just engages and brings order into chaos, brings life into darkness. And um, one writer put it this way, that, that like himself, God uses her to take what was useless on its own and shape it into glory. Dirty things clean, chaos turned to order, an empty kitchen overflowing with life and food, children in want of knowledge and truth, and a mother eager to teach them, a man in need of help and counsel, and a woman fit to give it, friends and neighbors with a thirst for the truth, and a woman opening her home and heart to share it with him. A woman is displaying the image of God as she nurtures 
life. Next, the woman displays and images God in her beauty. Um, this is not just physical, though that's a part of it. And our culture has so damaged this idea, that, and we'll talk more about that in two weeks, but, but God did indeed design women to bear his beauty in a way that is overwhelmingly glorious and that is intoxicating to men. Our culture, uh, unfortunately, holds up the standard of beauty that is often debilitating to women everywhere. And, and that's not the point. I'm not saying God made you to be beautiful, and then you think, okay, what well, our culture says to be beautiful, and I'm not that, so I must not be. Listen, you need to, you, you got to lay that down. We'll talk more about that in two weeks. But I'm not saying what our culture's standard of beauty is. What I'm saying is God has made the woman to have a beauty about her that just doesn't exist in men, right? Hey, man, man, y'all with me? Like, we just ain't pretty like that. Right? There, there's, there's something good about that. Our culture has distorted it, right? And now, it, like, sex is, is so built up, and, and it's all this it's mess. But listen, there's something good about the way that God has designed a woman to have beauty about her, and, and, her husband, like, and that is for her husband's enjoyment, right? The Bible is very clear that God himself is beautiful, 1 Chronicles 16, 12 says, Ascribe to the Lord what is good, and the glory due his name. Bring an offering before him. Worship the Lord in his beauty or in his splendor and holiness. Like God himself is beautiful. The sunsets, the creation, the things we adore and just can't make sense out of in our creation. Like God made all that, and the, the pinnacle of that is the woman. And he's made that so that her man, right, her husband only, like, is to enjoy that. Song of Solomon is, a, is an erotic book talking about how the woman is, like, to be enjoyed by her husband. So the woman becomes her husband's standard of beauty, and that's what he enjoys. Right? He enjoys her, and that, that should free the woman from this pressure of the culture, what, i got to look like this, i got to do like this. No, 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 you got to let your man enjoy you because God has made it in that way, which he does. He does enjoy. Like, like, like it's no accident that we are aroused by what we are aroused. Like, God put that in there. Again, there's so much distortion in our culture, but, but women indeed Image God as beautiful creations. And then lastly, and this is not exhaustive. I don't pretend this is an exhaustive list, but just for us today. um, Women image God in their mystery. Ephesians 5.32 talks about the, 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 the dynamic of a husband and a wife. And he says this mystery is is Profound. And it actually is pointing you to Christ in the church. Right? So there's a mystery about marriage that points us to Christ and his church. And here's the reality. Every man knows the mysteriousness of women. Right? And not in this bad, like, like, we, we, like, you're probably thinking, when I say mysterious, you're probably thinking, like, yeah, I don't understand her most of the time. And that's not really what I'm talking about, right? Like, when she says this, is this a trap? Or how do I answer? Do I look good in this or not? Like, does this make me look fat? Like, I know there's lots of confusion there that becomes a mystery about how we should approach. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not qualified to talk about that. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about there's, this, there's a mystery that, that draws us in, right? When a single man is in pursuit of a of a partner, of a, of a, of a woman, right? There's a, there's a mystery there that, that draws us in in the pursuit of Eve. Like, we're, we're, we're captivated by that, right? We, we're longing to know her deeply and infinitely. And all that is God-wired into us, right? And it doesn't end after you get married. You experience that in, intimacy, and it's like, okay, no, not, no, no, no. That grows over time. And uh, we're only 11 years in, but I could say that the, the mystery and the beauty of my wife has only gotten, like, 100 times greater than it was before, whenever I was like crazy about her and couldn't like 
keep my hands off. Like, no, no, it's only gotten better. And that as we lean into our marriages, as we lean into life, listen, we're going to talk about this a couple weeks too, but Proverbs 31 says, charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting. Gravity wins, right? (laughs) That's not what I'm talking about. It just does. You can do surgeries, but that stuff starts to look weird at some point. You can't, it's like, is she smiling? Is she happy? I don't know. I can't tell. There's just like a lot of stuff going on there. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. Like, it will, it will, the gravity will win. And so that's not what leads to sexual arousal. It's not what leads to uh, the pursuit of, of, like the pursuit of a, uh, a wife from her husband doesn't end if if she doesn't look like what the culture says she should look like. There's a deepening there that the covenant beauty of marriage where a woman's mystery continues to draw him in and you never get bored. There's a mystery about women. Listen, and if you're a single woman, like that's just you just need to know that, that God has wired you that way. And you don't need to apologize for your femininity. You need to know that there's, there's beauty and power and glory in that. God has made you that way. Uh, to the point, he says he set eternity on the hearts of man like we long for God, right? Like we long for more and more of him. Well, the longing for more and more of women, like that's to point us to the greater truth of like we're made for God. And Eve, woman, made in his image. And so there's so many parallels and pointers to the greater reality. And then lastly, as we kind of wrap this up, Proverbs 31 says, you know, after charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Listen, a woman is first and foremost a worshiper of God. And listen, women, I know that in all that you do, and especially on Mother's Day, like there's like my wife is out of town for three days this week. And so it's a good reminder of like, man, I am grateful for her, right? Because I tried to do all that on my own, and I don't know how you answer all those questions and still have any nerves left. Like, I just, it, it about did me in, right? So I'm grateful for my wife in a, in a pretty intensified way this week. But listen, women, I know that you labor and you give and you pour out and you bring life, you nurture, you bring uh, chaos, or you bring order into chaos, you uh, lose your mind. You're doing all of these things, and it seems like the world, and oftentimes us husbands, don't acknowledge it. We don't see it. Your kids are certainly not grateful for it. And, oh, and you just pour out and pour out and pour out, and you wonder, why am I doing this? And I want you to know you're worshiping God. You're imaging God. Jesus in Christ says, Jesus Christ himself says, I didn't come to be served. I came to give my life, right? To serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. So as you're doing that, whether anybody sees it or not, know that Jesus sees it. He knows it. And as you live your life as a woman, like you're worshiping your creator, you're bringing glory to him, and he sees it. He knows it. And one day you will experience the reward for it. So what do we do with this? Um, it's going to feel a bit incomplete because we don't get to talk about some of the brokenness and how Jesus redeems it, but, but it's for today. Like, we just set in it. We set in what, what God has put forward as his good creation. We receive it, and we, we let us impact it. In a couple of weeks, we'll get into the brokenness and how Jesus brings redemption to the particulars, but for today, we just need to feel the weight of God's good design of the woman as his image bearer. And so for men, you should already be feeling the weight of the ways that you contribute to the devaluing of women. From pornography to chauvinism and a whole lot in between, we are responsible, men, for creating the culture that objectifies and abuses women, creating a place where it doesn't feel safe for them to live out biblical womanhood because it's not what's honored, it's not what's lifted up. We as men need to own how we have failed to honor God's daughters as image bearers and where they have and where they have felt devalued, shamed, objectified, used, or less than, we need to repent, men. 
And yes, I mean repent in a general posture of how you view women, but I also mean specifically the women that you have affected, the women that you have not held in high enough regard and esteem and honor, you need to repent to them and ask for their forgiveness. And you need to throw yourself on the, the, the mercy of Jesus Christ and ask and hope that he would help you do better. And women, I don't pretend to know the weight of what the distortion of womanhood has put on you. I have seen and uh, am seeing increasingly as the dad of three little girls how the, the, the tension of what God has called you to be and what he values and what the world puts in place, how that is, man, so different and so hard to navigate. And so I don't pretend to know all the ways that that has affected you over your life, whether that be a physical image and the idea of sexiness being what gives a woman value or this you know, maybe overly feminist movement saying that you don't need to be a woman, you can do anything a man can do and throw off that oppression that's not even to mention the personal sins that may or may not have been committed against you. So my hope for you this morning, women, is that you can hear the words of the Father, your Creator. That He didn't mess up when He made you. That He sees what you've been through, the insecurity, the fear, the abuse. He sees how you pour yourself out day in and day out and make everything around you better. Though no one else in your house may know why the floors are clean, God knows. He sees your tireless work, and it brings him glory. You are imaging and worshiping him through it all. And where this is hard to believe, this message, because God's good design has been blurred, and it's, it's all the baggage of your story keeps you from hearing this truth and receiving, and you're running through the list of reasons why you're not this. I hope that, that today Jesus' blood speaks a better word over you, and you're able to receive the words of the Father, that he doesn't love some future version of you. He didn't die for some future version of you. He sees you. He knows what you've been through. He knows your struggle, and he gave his life. In that condition, he gave his life for you. He declares your value and worth beyond anything this world has to offer. So my encouragement as we close is not that you resolve to try harder and do better at womanhood, rather that you would sit and receive God's word as truth in your life, that you would hear, feel, and be transformed by the gospel. That indeed, nobody can live up to the fullness of God's design for womanhood or motherhood or, or manhood, but the good news is that Jesus did it for us, that he gave himself to bring redemption, forgiveness, and restoration into our world. So lean into that. Ask him for help to help you believe it where you struggle, where you struggle to let those words be true. Just pray. And Lord, I believe your word Help me, help me in my unbelief. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for your good design, the implications of which we've only begun to scratch, but you are so good in the way that you have made us. So I pray that your truth would bring healing, stand over and against the lies and distortions that this world has brought onto particular women here today and on our culture in general. And help us to be people who find joy and freedom in the way that you have called us to live. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.